60 years, one of the most persistent topics of conversation in the church. Perhaps one of the most persistent points of contention has been the law. What do you mean by the law? Now, there's nothing new, by the way, about this, the fact that there was some controversy. For example, Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 3 and verse 9. He said, avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. So I can only conclude from that that there were some problems or some attitudes or some difficulties about the law back in that day. Elder Straub the other day mentioned the phrase, dead to the law. He wanted uh, Mr. Ted Armstrong's opinion on the matter, or what the meaning of that phrase was out of Romans, and seemed to indicate that it had been a point of some discussion, perhaps even of debate, uh, among the elders of the Church of God Seventh Day. Among some Protestant denominations, dead to the law basically means that you don't have any obligation to keep the law. Of course, we've explained it somewhat differently over the years. The Worldwide Church of God, years ago, and I don't know if it's still in print there or not, you might ask for it if you'd like to write out, there was an article entitled, Which Old Testament Laws Should We Keep Today? And I believe it was by Herman Hay. I don't, uh, I'm not sure, and I don't even recall the underlying thesis of the article. But I do know it was a matter of, of a great deal of question uh, that arose in the church at that time. One of the more dominant ones, I remember, standing around the Shakespeare Club on Saturday afternoon after services and chewing the rag with uh, such veterans as Les McCullough and, uh, uh, let's see, trying to think of some of the other names like Dean Wilson, who was a friend at that time, and Charles Huntington, we would talk about different things. And we worked up in letter answering department, and people wrote questions in, and we had to answer them. And one of them, for example, had to do with whether or not it was right to wear a woolen background suit. Now, you can, you know, there are a lot of important things that need to be discussed. And it was very important to us to know whether or not that was a violation of that Old Testament law that said that you're not to allow a garment of mixed fabric such as wool and linen to come upon your flesh. And so there was a great deal of concern about this. And I remember one of the fellows in my spokesman's club was profoundly concerned about whether or not the elastic around the, the band of the, of the top of the socks would actually constitute the mixing of fabrics together. In case you've ever heard Mr. Ted Armstrong quickly passing refer to letting the socks hang around your ankles, that's what he's talking about. We actually had people who felt they had to take those out of their socks. And uh, I think some men actually wore garters back in those days in order to, to purchase socks that didn't have elastic in the top of them. Now, I don't want to give the impression that just loads and loads of people did that. And I look back at myself and I laugh. I, I'm, I'm laughing at myself as much as anybody. I don't wish to make fun of anyone's uh, uh, convictions or beliefs, but... I bring it up merely to illustrate that uh, sometimes you can get some very, very heavy concerns going about some things that maybe in, in, uh, in retrospect, in years to come, you might look back on them and say, now why was that so important to me at the time? Actually, that, that, that article, Which Old Testament Laws Shall We Keep Today, was a response. It was a response to questions being raised by people in the church, and it, it outlined a major focus frankly, of the questions. They do focus on uh, having to do with God's law, and they, they do revolve around the question of whether or not we today, now in the 20th century, need to really give that much consideration or pay that much attention to some of the laws that we read in the Old Testament. One minister asked me, for example, why it is that we play hopscotch, as he put it, through the Old Testament, keeping this law and not keeping that one right next to it, and, and you know, we'll pick one right out of a the center of a chapter that we feel is important, we should keep it, and yet the one right after it, we don't, we don't keep. In fact, we would shudder at the thought of being asked to keep that law. And his, his question, I thought, was fairly valid. His question was, what was the criterion that we used to, do, to decide that we would do this and we would not do that? Other people have asked a question along the lines of, well, is this law, and they might bring up the holy days or tithing, and they'll say, is this law required for salvation? And it was kind of interesting not long ago, I, in a sermon, said, uh, hold on, I hope I don't shock you. No, that it's not required for salvation. And then went on afterward to say, but it is a sin not to tithe. It is a sin to violate God's holy days or not to keep God's holy days. Interestingly enough, I heard not long ago that it had been uh, uh, mentioned in one of the churches, I think here in Texas, that Ronald Dart doesn't believe in keeping the holy days anymore. And I... Uh, I told the person that said that they should be around on days of unleavened bread come around. I also asked somebody, well, what did you think we were doing down in Jekyll Island? 
And the one I was talking to said, oh, you were, were you down in Jekyll Island? And I said, yes, we were. We were down there keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. But anyway, some have asked if those are required for salvation. Other people make a distinction between the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. In other words, here's the Ten Commandments. If they are valid, the rest of the law is not. Some people distinguish between the law of God, on the one hand, and the law of Moses, on the other, feeling that if it can be identified as the law of God, you should keep it. But if it is a matter of the law of Moses, then that's done away with. There isn't any obligation, necessarily, to keep that law. Still others distinguish between the moral law and the ceremonial law, and try to make the distinction based upon whether or not it is a ceremony or ritual, a sacrifice of some sort, that those are done away, whereas the other aspects of the law or not. One group, in fact, contends that all of the law was nailed to the cross, including the Ten Commandments, but that nine of the commandments were reinstated in the New Testament. I'll give you one guess as to which one of the commandments was not reinstated along with the rest of them. Well, with typical human wrongheadedness, we usually manage to make giant issues out of things that really uh, are one of the wrong things, are the things that aren't really, really that critical. And I've felt that so much of the time, we give too little attention to trying to understand a matter. A lot of people, it seems, are more concerned with, well, now, do I have to do this or not, than asking the question, what does this mean? And what's behind it? And what is the underlying principle? Too few people ever get around to asking why. And to me, it's the only question that's really all that interesting. The old journalistic approach, you know, you have to ask the questions of who, what, when, where, how. That's all interesting, I suppose. But to me, the important question is why. And when I look at some of the laws in the Old Testament, and I sit back and I ask myself, why did God ever say that? I've come up with some rather intriguing questions, at least. I don't know how many answers I can say I've, I've come up with, but at least I've come up with some interesting questions. In my opinion, the question what, why, is the key to understanding. A lot long ago I saw, I was driving along behind a car, and I saw this bumper sticker. In fact, I've seen it several times. It says, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. And I, I'm sure that, I mean, I can sympathize with that, but it seems to me that a person who goes, who, who just makes that as his credo of his life, omits or does not give sufficient attention to the necessity for understanding. Why? God said it. Fine, God says it. And I believe what God says. And if God says what it is, I hope I will, I mean, I certainly hope and will try to do it. But it does not answer for me the important, I think, the vital question of why did God say it? And I go back to Jeremiah 9.24, where he says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the strong man glory in his strength. Let him that glories, let him glory in this, that he understands and knows me. And it seems to me that in approaching the study of the law, that it is in this area that we have a great opportunity for coming to understand God and begin to understand why he did some of the things that he did. Now, I have approached the law and the study of the law with, with a basic assumption. And, of course, you always want to look for someone's assumptions or their premises whenever you start discussing or looking into an argument they may be advancing. I'm giving you mine right up front. I am assuming that God would not and did not give to man a law that was bad for man. Now, I think that's a fair assumption. I, I remember there is one of the uh, prophets who said, you know, I gave them also laws that were not good and ways whereby they should not live. But the translation should be, I gave them over to laws that were not good. Because it seems to fly in the face of the, of the knowledge of God or the character of God or what we see and know of God to assume that God would have given to man laws that were not good. I have trouble with that. I haven't been able to get around that. And of course, in truth, the translation doesn't say that. But anyway, then when I get around to asking, why is this law good, since I am operating on that premise, I find some intriguing questions. I'm sorry, some intriguing answers and some intriguing questions. And I, have, I believe, right down to the core of my being, that God's law is not arbitrary. That God did not simply sit back one day and, now let's see, these people need some laws. And I must at this point determine what is going to be right and what is going to be wrong. And that God therefore said, now let me see, this is fun, so I will make that wrong. You would think, you know, if he were just going to do it that way, he could have taken the things that were fun and made them right, 
and taken the things that were not fun and made them wrong, and it would make life just a lot easier for all of us if that were if it were just an arbitrary decision. But one of the fundamental things I think we all understand is that God, who made man, knows man. And as Mr. Herbert Armstrong has put it, the Bible is God's instruction book to man. It's like the instruction book that comes along with a new car. It tells you what kind of oil to put in it. It tells you how fast to drive it. It tells you how to break it in, how to care for it. It tells you all about periodic maintenance. Well, the assumption is that God, having created man, then began to communicate with man a way of life, a way of living, and things to do that were good for man, would save him from hurt and from trouble and from the heartache that might come his way along the way. And so we proceed from the assumption that God, when he speaks to man, tells him something that is good for man. Now, there's a problem with that, because as you begin to read through the law, you're going to occasionally find laws that are a little bit annoying, frankly, you're going to find some that are deeply and profoundly troubling. One very interesting situation on that is the laws regarding slavery. I think, I don't know when the first time I ever read those laws, but I can remember after I had come to Ambassador College, and I think I was a student at the time, and I was reading my way through the book of the law and trying to understand what I was reading. And I came across these laws, and one of them that said that if a man beat his slave and he dies under his hand, that he shall, his life shall go for the slave. But if the slave lives on for a few days and dies, the man should be free of it, for, as it was said, he is his money. Now, when I read that, it created a very serious personal crisis for me. Because I said to myself, how can a God who is good take such a callous look at human beings and, and, and see them treated as, as chattel, as property, in that way? Why would he do that? Now, I'm not going to answer that question for you today, although there is an answer to it, and I think it's a very important answer and one that, one that we need to understand. But it is still, and those laws regarding slavery, in my opinion, still fall within the assumption God did not give ever to man a law that was bad for man. But my point is that sometimes, in the process of, of discussing it, or perhaps even arguing about the law, it's not so much that we're getting the wrong answers as it is that we're asking the wrong questions, or that maybe we're not asking the best questions in the process of time. For example, you're all familiar with the old statement, are you still beating your wife? This poor guy on the witness stand, the lawyer comes up, sticks his finger in his face, has him already all sweating and, and nervous, and his upper lip is all wet, and he says, are you, tell the truth, yes or no, still beating your wife? And the man says, no. He says, aha, then you admit you did beat her in the past. And the poor guy stammers, don't know that is what I mean. That's all. No further questions of this witness. You know, that can happen. All right. Now, there's another question very similar to this. Is the law of Moses binding upon Christians? It's a very similar question. Or are the holy days required for salvation? It's another similar question. Because the problem is these, there are implicit assumptions in these questions that make the questions invalid. I'll explain what I mean. Are the holy days required for salvation? Assumes that there are some laws that are. Whereas in actual fact, the role of the law is not to achieve salvation. It's not even for that purpose. It is absolutely irrelevant to it. Then you ask, is the law of Moses binding upon Christians? What does the word binding mean? Binding for what? You mean you're supposed to do it? Well, if you don't do it, what happens to you? Uh, really, it's another way of asking the same question of, is it required for salvation? And again, the same thing comes back. The implicit assumption is, I'm assuming that, that this has something to do, that the law has something to do with salvation. In other words, it assumes a role for the law that God never intended for law to play. And so I think maybe we ought to take a little time to see if we can understand this particular point with a little more depth. And I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy, the 25th chapter. I want to take an illustration of one of these Old Testament laws and discuss it for a few minutes under the, in, in the vein, along the vein of what I've been saying. 25 and verse 4. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. Now, it's an interesting law. And you think about how should a Christian feel about this law? Is a Christian bound, or should they feel bound by this law? Well, now, 
In the first place, we could say, well, is it a ceremonial law or is it a moral law? Well, there certainly isn't any ritual involved with it. And yet, on the other hand, uh, is it a question of morality, whether or not you uh, feed an ox while he's actually working instead of feeding him before? Uh, is it the law of Moses or is it the law of God? Is another question a person could answer. Ask, and that may be a little difficult. I suppose we would conclude, being where it is, that it's probably the law of Moses. Uh, what if I don't have an ox? Do I need to go out and buy one? I mean, I know the question is absurd, but nevertheless, it's one that has to follow on the question of how binding is this law upon us. Or maybe we could ask, was this law nailed to the cross? Now, maybe you're a little bit ahead of me, but let's turn back to 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, where Paul digs this out. He takes it right out of context, drags it all the way forward into the New Testament, and in a letter to the Gentile church at Corinth, brings this in as an illustration of something he's trying to say. In the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul begins by saying, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? I won't go into it today, but that very question, am I not free, is an interesting one. and has all sorts of implications. If I be not an apostle to others, yea, doubtless I am to you, for the seal of my apostleship are you in the Lord. My answer to them that examine me is this. Have we not the power to eat and drink? Actually, the word is authority. Now, what does he mean by that? Of course, everybody has. Well, in context, what Paul is asked, saying is simply this. Don't I have the authority on the, at church expense, based upon the money you people give to the church, to eat and drink? In other words, to buy a meal when I'm on a trip for the, for the church or when I'm here serving the church. Don't I have the authority, actually, to get my house? Don't I have the authority to pay my expenses? Can't I uh, forbear working, he says in verse 6, and actually put my whole time in the church? Who goes to warfare, verse 7, any time at his own charges? Who plants a vineyard and eats not the fruit thereof? Who feeds the flock and eats not the milk of the flock? Now, am I saying these things as a man, or doesn't the law say the same thing also? Now, here comes his appeal to the law. He says, now, first off, some of you are going to come back about this argument of mine saying that I and Barnabas and Peter or any of the others have the right to be full-time in the ministry and be paid for the work that we do. But somebody's going to come back and say, now that's just purely a human argument. All right, what is his appeal? He does not appeal to Christ when he was with him in the wilderness saying, Jesus said. He doesn't appeal to the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't appeal to Peter. He appeals, of all places, to the law of Moses. And he says, for it is written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. Does God take care for oxen, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? Now, that is a very interesting statement. Does God really care that much about that animal that you work with out there? And if you take the animal in before you're ever going to work it, and you go ahead and feed it, you work the animal, and then you feed it after you work it, but you're sure the animal gets plenty to eat. What does God care whether or not you muzzle that animal while it treads up and down amongst this grain that you've got here? Paul's answer is, for our sakes, no doubt, this is written, implying that the ox really had precious little to do with the law when it was originally given. Oh, sure, some people plowed with ox. Uh, but some people plowed with an ass. And there were other people who, who weren't even in agriculture, who worked in the mines. There were other people who actually worked at vineyards and did not even use animals for anything that we were doing. They actually carried their fruit out of the vineyards when they worked themselves on their own shoulders. And so there were people that this law would not have meant that much to when God gave it to them, but he spelled out the law saying, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. Paul comes back and says, to all of us for us to understand, it is written, for our sakes. Now, here we are told, a Gentile church is told, long after anything that was going to be nailed to the cross was nailed there, after Christ is buried, resurrected, and at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And Paul says to a Gentile church, here is a point out of the law of Moses that was written for our sakes, but not because God was concerned about oxen. Why then? He goes on to say that, and here is his reason, he that plows should plow in hope, and he that threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we reap your carnal things? 
If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we, rather? I haven't used the power, nevertheless, but we suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the temple, and they that wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so has the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. It's an interesting statement. Now, that is not, of course, I mean, the gospel of the church or the ministry was not what, purely what God had in mind when he gave that law. But in such a simple, terse little statement, just two lines, I believe, in your Old Testament, he lays down a principle for the person who is willing to understand it that can transcend generations, that can transcend national boundaries, that is applicable in any circumstance of human endeavor or enterprise or cooperation. And that is that a man should be paid for what he does. Now, a Pharisee in New Testament times, doubtless, would have considered, he would have been very meticulous in the process of his servants and the work that was being done in his fields, and all the grain is here and it's being tread out, he would have, he would have been very meticulous to have been sure that that ox was muzzled. I mean, not muzzled, that he was allowed to eat. He would have been very careful because that was specified in the letter of the law. But it's also very likely that he would have deprived the man who followed the oxen around and swatted him every once in a while of his wages. It's very possible he would have held him up for a week or two weeks or a month or have cheated him out of it and said, I have obeyed the law of God. And you know, the reason I'm going into this today is because I feel that over a period of time, we have assumed, because we went to the trouble to buy a suit that was 100% wool, that we have kept the law of God. And yet, we may very well cheat a brother out of something that's rightfully his. We might deprive a friend of something he should have had. And there are so many aspects of God's law that are much deeper than the surface. And it is easy, frankly, sometimes to do what's on the surface and to do what we, we think we should do that way and to overlook the deeper and, I think, the more profound meaning in the law. Now, on the one hand, as I said, the Pharisee might very well unmuzzle his ox and let him eat while he deprives uh, the servant of his wages. On the other hand, there might be someone else who would label an Old Testament law and just blithely ignore it. And both of them may wind up making the same mistake and maybe included in the same scripture. I want you to turn back to James, just after the book of Hebrews, to chapter 5 of the book of James. He says, Go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. It shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, cried. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered in the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived in pleasure of the earth, and have been wanton, and have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he doesn't resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, to the coming of the Lord. And he goes on developing his theme that he has. But what is fascinating is this profound and strong and powerful condemnation against human beings who would ignore the underlying theme of that law, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. I've used that and heard it used on many occasions. It's obvious that people understand that there's a principle that goes way beyond it. I remember when I was a freshman in college, and we were going down to play racquetball, handball actually, at the Y one day, and uh, Bill Evans, who was the director of transportation, uh, picked me up, and we went down there in the car, and it happened to be a transportation car. And I was new, and I was trying to do everything right, and I asked Bill, I said, Bill, should we be using a college car to run down to the Y? Now, it was only about five or six blocks downtown, but I kind of wondered, maybe we ought to use our own own, own uh, car. And Bill says, well, if I, if I give you a scripture for it, will you understand? I said, sure. He says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. And I said, you know, I believe he's right. Here's a man who runs the transportation department. Are we to pro prohibit him when it's convenient? Maybe his wife had the car and she was gone from using a college car to run five or six blocks downtown to take care of a matter of personal business. And the answer is absolutely not. 
under the biblical principle, you would not prohibit that. And it seems to me that if a person can simply understand and take himself just a little bit beyond uh, this thing, that, that they can come to understand things a little bit more deeply. Paul says, for our sakes, no doubt this was written. And But why? Well, Paul answered in that by going ahead and expounding the goal or the purpose of the law. Now, there is a great deal of law in the Old Testament that has no direct application to the Christian in the, in the 20th century. For example, we don't have any oxen, and therefore we can't uh, very well muzzle or unmuzzle an ox one way or the other. I don't know if anybody plows with oxen in this whole country of ours. Another law that is, I think, of slight interest in this regard is one that says you must have a battlement around the roof of your house. Now, I suppose somebody would feel, oh my, I guess I'd better go out and build a battlement around the roof of my house. And indeed, if you have a flat roof with access from the inside of the house to the roof, and you're going to be spending time up on the roof, and your children are going to be playing on the roof, and other people's children will be playing on the roof, you ought to put a battlement around the roof. Is that law abrogated? That is a simple law that simply states that you are responsible for seeing to it the safety of your family and the safety of your guests, and whatever the circumstance it might be. It may not be the roof of your house. It may be nothing more than a patio or a, a, a deck that you've had built out over a, a, a drop-off over maybe along the lake. Now, the question is, are you then bound by the law to put a balustrade around it? Depending on where you are, you may be bound by the civil law. You may be bound by the building code to do so. And certainly, if anybody falls off it and is hurt, you will be construed as negligent by the law of this land. And so here is a, a biblical principle going back centuries and millennia laid down that has application in the 20th century. The only reason it doesn't, in many cases, is because, as I said, we don't have a pitched roof. And there are some people, and we don't have a flat roof. And some people would say, well, in the 20th century, as I heard some people actually use that as an illustration to show that the law of God was not binding in the 20th century. Because they said, ha-ha, none of us have flat roofs. And they had completely forgotten that in many parts of the world to this day, there are people who not only have flat roofs, they have stairways that go up to them, they go up in sun, or the air is fresher up there, they go up and sit in the evening. In fact, the work that the work that, that the college owned in Jerusalem, the house we had down there, was just so. In fact, I think some of our, our fellows used to love to go up and sleep on the roof of that house at night because it was so cool up there once the sun had gone down and the evening breeze began to blow. And it did have a balustrade all around the side so there was not so much danger of falling off. It may be that some of the law would have no application to a man for the simple reason he had no wife, and certainly laws that pertain to a particular priesthood would have no application if that priesthood itself was not no longer in existence. And I could go on and on, but there's no temple, then many of the laws pertaining to the temple might not have application. Some are inapplicable because they deal with administrative penalties. For example, one had to do with a situation where if something happened, a hand was to be cut off. And you read that. As I said before, there are some of these laws that are going to trouble you. And that one kind of hit me when I thought of the idea of taking someone who had made this particular uh, breach and cut their hand off. I thought, oh, no. Now, the reason why so many of this type of law is inapplicable, is inapplicable is because they had to do with the administration of penalties. And Paul makes it clear in First, Second Corinthians 3 that the administration that would involve itself with penalties, and I think this is a very interesting concept, is no longer applicable to the church. In other words, we are not a civil government. We do not have a civil administration. We do not administer civil penalties. Therefore, those aspects of the law cannot be applied by us today. So, I, then I want you to turn back with me now to the 119th Psalm. Psalm 119. And verse 97, here's a statement made by a man after God's own heart, David. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, this is an interesting scripture to me in many ways. First of all, because of David's love, and we'll come back to this in a moment and go through some of the other things that he said. First, because of David's love for the law and his affection for the law, but secondly, because it was his meditation. Now, for the Pharisee, the idea of meditating on the law was kind of irrelevant because to him, what was needful to understand was simply what you had to do. I have to not muzzle my ox when he's trading out the corn. I do that, I have fulfilled the law. I must tithe. And therefore, if my mint, if I take off of my mint uh, plant out here and bring in, my wife brings in 20 leaves, 
we count them out very carefully, and I know I must tithe two leaves from these little mint trees that are in my backyard, these little mint plants, and I must tithe to this, and of my rue and of my cumin, I must very carefully and meticulously tithe. And so I do these things. Now, Christ had somewhat to say about this in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, and I want you to, to take a look at that with me. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment and mercy and faith. Now, let me ask you something. Where in the law is the law having to do with mercy and faith? Can you immediately, you know, think, oh, yes, there's this commandment or that commandment or that statute. Now, judgment you can find fairly readily, but question of mercy and faith. Now, it's there. I would never want to even begin to suggest that it's not there. But frankly... For the person who is accustomed to looking at the law on the surface in the letter of the law and simply doing what the law says and feeling that he has fulfilled his obligation, he may very well not understand the concept of mercy and of compassion that does find expression in the law. He might very well miss the idea of faith that is conveyed through the law and the lessons that are intended to be conveyed. He went on to say in verse 24, you blind guides, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. You actually work so hard to get certain technicalities of the law correct, and you never look below the surface of the law, at the deeper undercurrent, at the underlying meaning, at the underlying law, if you will. A law of love, and a law of faith, and a law of mercy, which are continued and contained in the law. And it is important for us to understand that the apostles did not necessarily make some giant distinction between the law of Moses and the law of God and the sacrificial law and the ceremonial law. Generally speaking, they just tossed the word law around as though everybody knew what they were talking about. They just talked about the law. And in that law is the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion, faith, these things that the Pharisees were utterly unable to understand. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. The idea of being able to fulfill the letter of the law while you threaten some poor soul with the disclosure of his secret sins, if he doesn't pay you money or give you access to this or allow you to do this, is an abomination to God. And yet these men, who appeared to be righteous, who were the pillars of the community who went up and down with broad phylacteries and with great sweeping gestures of generosity toward their fellow man, would steal, would lie, would cheat. They could keep the letter of the law while they shattered the underlying intent and the spirit of the law of God. He went on to say again, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward but within are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. The law of God, much like prophecy, is symbolic. And this, I guess, is the theme that I'm driving at in the sermon today. All the things that I'm, I've said, I'm trying to lead up to this concept. Because when I ask you and I say to you, which laws are applicable to Christians today? All of you fasten your seatbelts. Please don't hang up the telephone or turn off the tape recorder yet. All of them are. But you have to understand that the law is symbolic. And that the oftentimes the surface, or what the law appears to say, can't be applied for one reason or another. It doesn't really make any sense in the 20th century and for one reason or another. But that, you know, just like the, not muzzling your ox. It makes no sense today. But it is symbolic, as Paul showed us, and it is written for our sakes. So that we might read it, that we might think about what we read, that we might meditate on and try to comprehend what God's law actually means. The question people keep asking is, do I have to do this in order to be a Christian? Do I have to do this to make it into God's kingdom? Whereas I feel a far better question is, what does this mean? And I feel that when we come down to where we're understanding that, we might be just a lot further along toward understanding God and understanding ourselves and maybe knowing how to be a better Christian. Turn back to the Sermon on the Mount, because Christ made some, a very interesting point 
right in the heart of his most fundamental teachings, he actually made this very point. He says in chapter 5, verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. Or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, and that word, by the way, for fulfill in this particular thing is perose, which basically means to fill something up. The word fulfilled in the next verse is a totally different Greek word, which basically means come to pass. I am not come to destroy the law, but rather to fill it up. He then goes on to say, Verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass. And if you will check today when you go outside, they are both still there. Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass. Now does that mean that I have to take the rubber bands out of my socks? No, it doesn't. And I'm going to come to that in just a few minutes further along the way. But Christ's point is that I, you know people think in terms of the law being abrogated or abolished or done away. And in the process of trying to figure out whether I have to do this one or that one or both of them, they neglect to understand again, what does it mean? That's where the truth is to be found. He said, Whosoever shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. It is not enough for you to do the letter of the law and just go through the motions and then wipe your mouth and say, I have fulfilled the law of God, I'm worthy of salvation somehow. He said, unless your righteousness goes beyond that, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven because what is expected of us is that we look beyond the statement, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn and realize that we have an obligation not to animals but to men to be honest with them and to pay them what they are due and to give them what is theirs. And it's an eternal principle. It's not something that can be done away with just simply because uh, a time has changed or a circumstance has changed or some relationship between God and man has changed because this has to do with the relationship between man and man. And as long as there are two men, there is a necessity for one man who has another working for him to be honest with his employee. He goes on to say, You have heard it was said of them of old time, You shall not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, this is fascinating because here we get right down to the very basic fundamental thing. I have done no murder, a man might say. I could stand in front of this congregation as a Pharisee and say, I have never killed a man. And yet, does that mean that the commandment, thou shalt not kill, has no application to me because I have never been tempted to be? Christ says, no. Because if you've hated a man without a cause, you are guilty of the violation of the underlying spirit and intent of that commandment. The symbolizing, what it means, is there. He goes on to say again, <coughs> Whoever shall say to his brother, Rakai, thou fool, which is an epithet, a violent epithet, shall be in danger of the council. Whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has anything against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Maybe you didn't realize it, but that this little simple commandment by Christ was given under the aegis of the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. It is a part of the principle, a part of the spirit of that law, a part of what that law is saying to mankind. And it is not enough that we stand back as a Pharisee and say, I have not, when in truth, all of us have. And we get down to what the Ten Commandments are really all about. And we get down to seeing not merely the surface, but what is involved in being honest, telling the truth, honoring our father and our mother. The, every one of us would have to confess and become guilty before God and to realize that we have broken the law. And we are, there we are totally dependent upon the mercy of Christ. Now, there is so much in this that I could go into, that, but we're all very, very familiar with these statements of Christ about, uh, it was said of them of old time, you shall not commit adultery, but I say it to you that whoever looks upon a woman to lust after has already committed adultery, that we could stand up and say, now, I haven't done that, and or I haven't committed, broken the commandment. And yet Christ 
is come, as he put it, to magnify the law and to make it honorable, as they put it in Isaiah 42.21. And when we get down to where we start picking it apart and getting down into the core of what that, 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 that commandment is all about, or any of the commandments of God, which of us can say we are clean? Which of us can say, I have not sinned, and wipe our mouth and go our way? The truth of the matter is that the commandments of God reach so much deeper into us. You have said, verse 43, it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. And he goes on to develop and explain the law. And he says in the end of it, be you therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Because God is, in himself and in his character, himself an expression of his law. Now, I think it's really interesting to look at that, as I said, and we're very familiar with those. And I want to take you back right now to the Old Testament to some that are not so familiar and perhaps not so easily dealt with because Christ did not mention these. I want you to turn back to chapter 22, Deuteronomy, and take a look at some old laws that used to be kind of a problem to a lot of people. And uh, maybe they didn't understand what they meant. Maybe they did not know what to do with them. But they are really good laws in their fundamental understanding. And the underlying principle, while maybe the surface of it has no application for you, and maybe you don't really necessarily grasp what that is driving at, I think that you can understand that there are some principles here that you should grasp. In chapter 22, verse 1, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep go astray and hide yourself from them. You shall in any case bring them again to your brother. You're walking down the road, here comes, you know, an animal that belongs to your neighbor. Oh, I'm in a hurry. I haven't got time. Uh, he'll find him sooner or later. I, I'm not going to let him know I even saw it. And just keep on going your way. He said, no, you're not to do that. You're to go over and take the animal and help catch the animal and return him. Because who knows how far the animal could go. And someone could steal that animal. Now, that obviously has no application to us today. Well, perhaps not on the surface of it for you living in town. But if you live in the country, it might very well have some application for you. But really, if you get down to what the law is really talking about, it has an application to every man. I am responsible for trying to help protect my neighbor's property. Now, that is, a, that is a Christian principle. It is one that we should understand, that we should hold ourselves accountable for. And it's a part of the law of God. If your brother is not near you, and if you don't know him, you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall be with you until your brother looks for it, and then you give it back to him again, even if you have to feed it while it's there. In like manner shall you do with his ass, and so shall you do with his raiment. With any lost thing of your brother's which he has lost, and you have, you have found it, you are to do likewise. You are not to hide yourself and pretend you don't know anything about it. You, you shall not see your brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. Here's a guy that's in trouble. Maybe he's over there working himself trying to get this animal out of the ditch. And you're coming along and, oh, no, and you try to cross over to the head so he doesn't see you. So you don't have to help. No, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to walk right on down the road to him and stop and help. Now, obviously, the ox or the ass is not in effect anymore for you if you don't live where they are. But the underlying principle, the symbolism of the law is certainly there, isn't it? That you are to help and to pitch in. Verse 5 is interesting because I remember answering a letter in LAD back in good old days from a woman somewhere up in Minnesota who was really deeply concerned about whether it was wrong for her to put on her husband's parka to go out and milk the cows because it was putting on that which pertains to a man. Fortunately, I, at least I hope we were able to put her mind at rest that that was not what this scripture is all about. It has nothing to do with it. But over the years, we have had some incredible what shall I say? My, my vocabulary begins to fail me. I'm about to drop back into the vernacular. But as, as to the foul-ups that we have had and people's minds and attitudes about what, for example, women could wear to church. Now, there, you know, there has been a law. In fact, I think there is a regulation or at least a, a suggestion or a strong suggestion. I don't know if it's a prohibition in some churches of God today that women are not allowed to wear pantsuits to church. Now, it is a wonderful thing. I rejoice in the fact that it has never been necessary for anybody to mention here what anybody's supposed to wear to church. Now, that is because the Bible seems to say that you're supposed to accept people in church in whatever means, in whatever way they come. Now, individually, you may want to be, look at the Bible and say, well, I'm going to appear before God, but therefore I should do my best. But that's your, your responsibility, not mine. My responsibility is that if you come in wearing overalls and some wealthy man comes in with a beautiful Hickey Freeman suit on, 
I'm supposed to treat both of you people the same and not be a respecter of persons and not ask the guy with overalls to go back out to his car or come back next week when he's bought himself a suit. No, no. And it doesn't, you know, it would be nice if the overalls were clean, but they don't even have to be clean. As far as I'm concerned, I know as far as Mr. Ted Armstrong is concerned, a man can come in here with his dirty overalls on and he is welcome in a fellowship of God's people. But, you know, we, I remember someone was asking the question about what this pertains to a man and the question of a woman's pantsuit. Mr. Fortune was there at the time. He says, now, wait a minute. He said, the Chinese women's apparel is, you know, it's pants. And he says, what difference does it make whether the, the fabric goes around both legs or around each leg separately? You know, he was really getting down to the brass tacks and saying, what in the world are we talking about? And I think there are some parts of the world where men actually wear a a kilt, you know, and it's, it's, it's that which pertains to a man. And I could go on and on with that, but it really gets rather interesting. But now, wait a minute. Let's just stop and do like David and say, let's meditate. Let's think for a moment about God's law. Because oftentimes, common sense is one of the first casualties in all these discussions that come along. Does God really care whether or not the parka a woman puts on to go out and milk the cows is hers or her husband's? Or if her feet get cold and she's rummaging around a drawer at home at night, sitting in front of television, pulls out her husband's socks and puts them on because he's got some woolly ones and she doesn't have any woolly ones. Is God really going to say, aha, you know, now I have her, she's done put on these socks and that's wrong. I, you know, that seems, that troubles me. That would bother me a little bit. But if I go back and I say to myself, all right, a problem that existed in the world then and a problem that exists in the world today is the problem, as young people are growing up, of having difficulty in retaining their sexual identity. And it is really a difficulty, and some of the psychologists that have done studies in the homosexuality have determined that the loss of sometimes a father, or the loss of, it isn't just the loss of the father even, but it is a matter of the, the loss of identity. In other words, of having a to identify with and say, that's a man, I'm a man, therefore I know what men are. That this, or vice versa with women, that this loss of the identity, the sexual identity, is oftentimes responsible for some of the deviations that take place in later life, which can lead to an enormous amount of heartache, mental agony, perhaps mental illness, and perhaps suicide and death. Whereas God just simply says, in this case, a woman is not supposed to try to look like a man, a man is not supposed to try to look like a woman, because we wish to retain this concept of identity of the sexes. Now, this is the underlying meaning of this law. There may even be more to it than that. But, you know, I feel that a person who would take the time, as David did, to lean back, you know, after maybe breakfast with a cup of coffee in his hand, and spend a little time staring off into space, thinking about what he read in his Bible study that morning as he heard his prayer, as he was, had his Bible open while he was reading it, and it just gives some serious thought to, now, wait a minute, what kind of a God do I serve anyway? And what did he mean by this? I'm beginning with the assumption that God is not arbitrary, that God is not unkind, that God is love, that he never gave man a law that was bad for him. And I, again, if you can disprove that premise, you've got me. But I'm going to operate on that and live by it. I believe it is an article of faith. I think that law is, is simple enough to understand as to what God's intent. Verse 6, if a bird's nest chanced to be before you in the way, and any tree or on the ground, whether there be young ones or eggs, and the dam sitting upon the young or upon the eggs, you shall not take the dam with the young. You shall in any wise let the dam go and take the young, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Now, I suppose there are some people who feel that God in heaven is counting these little birds, which he is, actually, and that he watches this, and that because you, you, you don't do this right, he's going to shorten your days up deliberately with malice aforethought. What this really means is that the days of man upon this earth are dependent upon his attention to ecology to the animal and the wildlife and to not just destroying species and seeing to it. The conservation of your game, the conservation of your natural resources is all that law is all about. Is it binding? Well, of course it is, but what do you mean binding? Is that a bad word? Is it meaningful in the 20th century? Certainly it's meaningful in the 20th century. Now, all the laws in the Old Testament are not that easy to show, but that doesn't mean that there isn't meaning. It just simply means that perhaps I do not understand the meaning of that law yet. Well, let's go on, because we're getting to a couple of them here that have been, uh, you know, that I mentioned earlier. When you build a new house, you shall make a battlement for your roof, that you bring not blood upon your house if any man falls down from that. 
That's just being responsible for your property and the protection of people that come upon your property. It is applicable. It has meaning. It has relevance to the 20th century. You shall not sow your vineyard with diverse seeds, lest the fruit of your seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. Now, there's one where I don't know altogether how to explain that because it's out of my field. Someone else might be able to explain it a little more thoroughly. But look at this next one. You shall not plow with an ox and an ass together. Now, wait a minute. I don't know an awful lot about agriculture, and I don't really know necessarily what the problem would be there, but it seems to me that if it were impossible, it would have, God wouldn't have even mention it. If the inability of these two animals to be yoked up together and to pull that plow down a furrow, if that couldn't be done, I don't think he would have mentioned it. If it was dangerous, I think man would have found that out soon enough for himself, and God wouldn't have needed to mention it. And I ask myself, okay, why is it there? I am quite sure that the mixture of the fertilizer from the two animals has nothing to do with it, and it is not harmful one way or the other. I have no, I don't think the straightness or, or crookedness of the furrow has anything to do with it. But you know, when this kind of came home to me one day, I forget when it was, but we were sitting around one day talking about a young, uh, this fellow that was trying to date a girl to college. He, she wasn't that interested in him, and he was kind of pursuing her. And Charles Hunting and I were talking about it one day, and I remember him coming up, and I said, well, you know, I, he, I said, I know that that doesn't look right. I have a feeling it's not going to work. I said, why am I, why is it that I feel that way? And Charles said, it's simple. You shall not plow with an ox and an ass together. And I think he was referring to the uh, man in case as the latter individual in this particular slavery. Uh, because he was a little bit, uh, you know, showing some of the signs of the foolishness of youth in the process of all that he was going through. And really there's a truth, there's an element of truth in that. And I think that when we get down to it, that the principle that is expressed here is expressed elsewhere in the Bible as Thou shalt not become unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. In other words, there can be such differences between the pulling or the work or the accomplishment of two individuals or the abilities or whatever it is that they're being called upon to do that you really should not try to work them together or harness them together or bind them together or whatever it is. Now, I think that the, you know, if you can pull this out almost like rather than a law, let's call it a proverb, and say that there is a, a, a universal underlying law, that there can be such great differences or divergences between two people that they should not attempt to be in any way tied together, then I think that law makes sense and has meaning in the 20th century without too much difficulty at all. And there are business partnerships that I, I know some church members have gone into business partnerships with unconverted people and have had a great deal of difficulty with it. In some cases, they've worked out fine because of the understanding of the people concerned. But there is no guarantee that they are going to work out. Now, the next verse, Thou shalt not wear a garment of diverse sorts of, wool, of linen and woolen together, is interesting. Because in the first place, it, do, it, it doesn't say dacron and wool or dacron and cotton or rayon and what have you. It says linen and wool. Now, I don't know where in the world you could go today to get a garment made of linen and wool. I, I, I don't even know whether anybody ever bothered trying to mix linen and wool together. And I am led to wonder if that is even what the verse is about. Remember again that I think in many cases what God is doing, Christ spoke in parables, did he not? And oftentimes his intent was to convey this mean, a, a, a depth of meaning to some people while it really was not conveyed to others. And the same God wrote the Old Testament. The same Jesus Christ is the one that gave that law right there. Is he speaking in parables again? Is he trying to tell us something that maybe we don't see immediately in what we read here? Now, years ago, I believe it was Dr. Hay who suggested that this particular verse might have been intended to demonstrate in some way that the concept of interracial marriage was wrong. Now, at the time I felt, now that's stretching it an awful long way because I don't know why we would ever come to that conclusion. That is interesting. Uh, if you take that premise and you run with it a little bit and think it through for a little bit, you suddenly realize, now, there is no law in the Bible saying that you cannot marry black with white or white with yellow or any of the uh, races of mankind. And I think with very good reason. And, and you, if you had had the chance to go to South Africa and spend a little time there and see some of the almost ludicrous things, totally humiliating and, and, and abasing things, debasing things that go on, in the name of trying to keep the races apart, you might begin to understand uh, some of the things I'm trying to say. 
Because once you make the decision that black is not supposed to marry white, then the next question, and if somebody's going to ask it, and there isn't any way you're not going to have it asked, how black is black? You know, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, tea-colored, perhaps. Uh, like, uh, perhaps I am from India. And, of course, finally, in, in, in South Africa, they had to create a separate category called Asians. And it doesn't make any difference if you've got the Chinese Asian, which is so, you know, you put them alongside someone from, from India. And the difference is just, you know, it's, it's incredible. But they can marry one another because they are Asians in that country. And the difference is greater between them and some people the South Africans designate as colored and some people they designate as white. And you actually, in certain circumstances, have to go into court and have witnesses and have people look at you and make a decision and wind up with a card saying, I am black or I am white. That's what happens when you do that kind of thing. Now, it may very well be that God and his love, so look, you know, knowing man and having created man, may very well have wanted to convey to man that there can be intercultural, not necessarily racial, differences between individuals that could create all sorts of problems if you attempted to live together as man and wife and to try to mesh the two families, the in-laws of these two groups. Whereas if he had said and tried to make some kind of a statement about interracial marriage in the law, it would have been an almost untenable proposition. Whereas if he in some way conveys to mankind in a gentle way to those who are willing to hear it, that not just about race, but about culture and about whatever other kind of a difference that there might be, that you really ought to think very carefully about the trying to yoke them together or put them together or weave them together or put them together. I think there might be a principle here underlying it for the thoughtful person to think through very carefully and say, what is God's intent and what is God's will and what should I do, and thereby leave the decision in the hands of the individual without creating some enormous horrible bureaucracy to decide who's English and who's American, who's black and who's Chinese, who's this and who's the other thing, and it's such a debasing and such a horrible thing for anyone to ever get into. And yet, for God to gently suggest that there are differences between human beings, even when they're both white and both American, that could be so great they really should not be man and wife, that they could look in the Bible and see, you shall not plow with an ox and an ass together. You shall not have a garment of mixed linen and woolen, two totally different fabrics, one vegetable and one animal, come upon your flesh. And perhaps, perhaps, in the process of time, come to understand something that might keep you from some sorrow and keep you from some difficulty in this life or in this world in which we live. Now, I don't believe that any of these laws are abrogated, if you want to use that word abrogated even when it comes to the ceremonial laws, because there, perhaps more than anywhere, symbolism becomes extremely important. And what was the lamb that they killed for the Passover? Well, it was symbolic of Christ. And all Christ did was change the symbolism that was involved. He did not change the law. He still had to die. He still had to be sacrificed. He still had to pay the penalty for our sins. And he instituted new symbols, bread, and wine, and we are now beginning to look down toward the Passover, the time when we will come together, perhaps somewhere here in Tyler, and we will go through a ritual, a ceremony, if you will. We'll wash one another's feet. We will take wine, and we will take unleavened bread as symbols of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In the process, renewing again our acceptance of the sacrifice of Christ and our understanding of what it means to be a servant of our brothers in the church. It's an old law thousands of years old. And Christ only modified it very slightly as we come down to the 20th century. The law was not abrogated. The law was not really all that much changed. It was the symbols that were changed. The meaning, the meaning of the law was not changed. The washings, the ablutions of the Old Testament, why those are symbolized again in the waters of baptism. Abrogated, the underlying meaning of those things was the purification for sin. The underlying law of how man is, is purified from his sins is still the same. Only the symbols have been changed. And so you begin to think that maybe if you look back into the law, there are some things that a person might come to understand. And I think one of the most remarkable illustrations of this, and one of the most profound, is the Sabbath and the Holy Days. And it seems that 
for so many years in God's church, we were totally preoccupied with what we could do on the Sabbath, what we couldn't do. And the kind of questions we'd get in Bible study were, well, now, is it all right to wash dishes on the Sabbath? I've actually had that handed to me, a little slip of paper to answer in a Bible study question. And, of course, the natural question is, if you say, well, you really should stack them up, you know, really be better or whatever, well, can I wash one cup saucer so I can make myself some coffee? Of course. How about two cups? Two saucers. How about three? And it just goes, you know, becomes ridiculous immediately. And I'm afraid that, like Pharisees, for so much of our time as Christians, we began to focus on the letter of the law, and we had difficulty in getting beyond it to understand what the underlying meaning of it was. There are some people today who say, well, I don't know, really, I, I, I think the holy days are nice and all of that, but I don't necessarily think they have to be kept. I wonder, I wonder, brethren, how much of the truth about God's plan that we have today, we would have, had we not kept the holy days. I can think of so many things that I have come to understand and come to learn. The holy days, as I put it, sort of form a framework. They're like a, a line of seven pegs along a wall. And you can come along and you can hang things that you know about God on these pegs. They give you a frame of reference. They give you somewhere to go. They give you something you can re relate these things to. And I feel that my understanding of the pattern of what God is doing is so much clearer and so much more in-depth because I keep these days than it ever would be if I did not. And so I have to understand that, that the law of God is profoundly symbolic, pregnant with meaning. And that so much of the time, what we are doing is asking the wrong questions about it when we say, is it binding upon me today? I think far more apropos is to ask the question, what does it mean to me today? Many of the times, as you go through here, you're not going to know the answer. And I know maybe as you go home and start studying the law, from this point of view, you may be feeling like you want to call me and Mr. Armstrong and say, oh, does this mean this or the other? We're probably not going to know. I mean, the odds are, because there's so much to know, we'd have to say, I, I really don't know. Your explanation sounds as good as any. But it's the type of thing that we can look, we can study, we can share with our friends and ask people's opinions about and think, what do you think about that? And in the process of time, may even find some things that have meaning for us that don't have the same meaning or never will have the same meaning for anybody else because they help us to understand something about God that we really did come to need to know and that locks in perhaps with something in our own lives. I want you to turn back now to that 119th Psalm again, because I think I'd like to look a little bit more further down the line into what David had to say. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how love I thy law! It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, have made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever, ever with me. There was never a time when he was not going to have enemies, but he said, your commandments have made me wiser than my enemies. How? Just because he did them or because he strove to understand them? He started off by saying, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I think about these things, and I think about them deeply. As he came up against a problem, immediately because he had read the Scriptures and was well-versed in the Scriptures, he thought to himself, now how does this apply, and how can I do this, and how can I get around this problem that I have? And the law of God was there. As a help, he goes on to say, I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? For your testimonies are my meditation, because I think about what it is that you have said, and I strive to understand. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. And I think that these things are the understanding more than the teachers, more than my enemies, and interestingly enough, even more than the ancients. It was said by Christ, that the things that you now are beginning to understand, many prophets and righteous men have desired to know and did not, and that it was not time, perhaps, for them to know, and maybe they had not come to the place where they could know, and maybe they did not have the experience even yet, because one of the ways we learn is through the experience of facing a situation, and making a decision, and then having a chance maybe later to tell someone what happened when we made that decision and how it really worked. And I follow the law of God, and it happened. It worked. And then someone else can take what you have said and build on that and go on from there. As a result, maybe in later times would understand more than many people in previous generations would have understood about the law of God. I will say truly that the Church of God today understands 
far more of God and of his plan and where he's going and what's coming in prophecy because we have given attention to his law. We have thought about it. I'm afraid we haven't thought about it as much as we should because for too much of the time we've just said, well, let's see. Do I have to do this? Okay, well, I'll do that. Do I have to take care of this? Do I have to? Can I watch the dishes on the set? Uh, can I watch television? Is it all right to watch the news? Well, if the news, then how about the commercials? What about the sports section of the news? And the questions go on, and the details go on, and then somebody feels like screaming and saying, stop! That's not what the Sabbath is, and that's not what it means, and we're asking the wrong questions of this day. Maybe if we can begin to learn what the right questions are, we can begin to come to some more profound understanding and some deeper truth about God. I feel in a way like we have wasted an awful lot of time over the years that we, we could be if we had just had the wisdom to say, hold on a minute, I can't believe that God is that picky that he cares about whether my socks are down around my ankles or whether the elastics are in the my I can't believe that. There must be something more than that for here for me. If that, in all the areas of all the lives of the Christians in God's church, if we could have all understood that, I just wonder how much further along in our understanding and reaching the world with the gospel of the kingdom of God we might be today. But anyway, he goes on to say, I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I don't know. I feel that for an awful lot of my Christian life, I've been going down the road sort of by feel on my hands and knees, reaching out ahead of me to see, well, here's the ditch, now here's a rock, I've got to go around that. And now I'm beginning to ask maybe some better questions about the law, and it's almost like we've turned on a light and begin to see down the path a little way. I think maybe understanding one more thing about the role of the law is helpful. We've understood that the law is not to purchase salvation. That's not what it's for. Therefore, to ask the question, are the holy days required for salvation, is an invalid question. And the role of the law is not merely to define what sin is. We've always understood that, that that is a role of the law, but it is not all. It is also to convey wisdom and to convey an understanding of God. And so maybe if we can spend a little more time and just stop and think occasionally about the law and why we do it and begin to ask some better questions, we can understand where we're going a little bit better. The preceding message was taken from the Bible Study Worldwide website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries, P.O. Box 310208, Detroit, Michigan, 48231, USA. Bible study. You have questions, the Bible has answers.